I'd like to welcome you to the Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Tuesday, June 11th, 2013. My name is William Selby of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating the call. Today, we are honored to have as our guest Brigadier General Richard Simcock, the Deputy Commander of Marine Forces Pacific, to discuss the Marine Corps rebalance toward the Pacific. The command is the largest in the Marine Corps with approximately 83,000 Marines and sailors supporting missions such as the defense of South Korea and Japan. A note to the bloggers on the line today, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question. Respect the general's time and keep your questions succinct and to the point. And if you are not asking a question, we've asked that you please place your phone on mute. With that, sir, the floor is yours for your opening statement. Uh, William, thank you. Appreciate the uh, introduction and to all good morning. Uh, I, I won't say that it's a pleasure to be back here in D.C. because I left paradise to come here, but uh, uh, good to be back anyway. Let me just uh, very quickly say that uh, in the year that I have been at Marine Forces Command, uh, what I have seen is a very dynamic and evolving uh, Pacific region. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that uh, it, it has been, I characterize it uh, as dynamic and involving uh, or evolving, uh, and, I, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a lot about that. But let me just say that first, uh, some things have not changed in that uh, the United States is still a Pacific nation. Uh, we are still present and engaged in the Pacific. Um, the size of the Pacific has not changed. It is still vast. And we have our bumper sticker that our, our particular area of operation is from Hollywood to Bollywood, from penguins to uh, polar bears. And the challenge is to engage throughout the region with more and more of our partners, new and old, and also maintain our relations and engagements with our treaty allies, five of which that do reside uh, in, in the Pacific. One of the things that we're constantly uh, asked about from, from those nations is they're, they're concerned about our commitment and our presence uh, in the region. They see what's going on uh, in the world. They look at uh, the, the current uh, fiscal crisis that, that our nation is, is undergoing, and they want, to, they want to be reassured that their region is important to us, and they want to make sure that our presence will remain as it has for arguably since World War II of providing that security to the region of which every country in the region has benefited from. And that is, is what leads me back to how I started off, where it is, it is dynamic and evolving, and it is requiring us to also evolve and go to new directions, engage more with new partners, and find uh, avenues that countries can use to participate fully, to their fullest anyway, uh, within a security cooperation uh, that, we, that we use in, in engaging throughout the region. Last thing I will say to you before I open it up for, for questions, we do a lot on a day-to-day -day basis uh, throughout the region from an exercise standpoint. Uh, at, at Marine Forces Pacific, we do uh, about 100 different exercises throughout the region. Within Pacific Command, uh, over uh, 
170 uh, different exercises. This is one of our main tools of engagement from a mill-to-mill -mill standpoint um, in, in, in what we do throughout the region. Key point I tell you about that the, w the way that we did business uh, in the past was more of a bilateral nature, where it was just us and one other, other country. That's changing. That's part of the evolving nature of, of the region where now it's a multilateral and we're taking uh, old exercises and expanding them into a multilateral aspect, which is challenging in itself because people come to the exercises with varying degrees of capability. The challenge is to make an exercise, to design an exercise that facilitates each of the participants to accomplish uh, their, their, their training objectives and their goals. Uh, and, and to date, we've, we've been fairly successful with that, and that's one of the, the aspects of how the region is changing. Let me stop there and, and give you all the opportunity to ask the, the specific questions that you have, and I look forward to those questions. Thank you, sir. And somebody else join us? Glenn, this is Michelle. Okay, Michelle, I'm not sure if it's you, but uh, there's some background noise coming from there. It might not might, might not be you, but uh, could you please, everybody, make sure their phone is on mute if you're not asking a question. Uh, Rita, you were first on the line, so you can go ahead with your question. Okay, thank you, um, and thank you, General, for talking with us today. Um, my name is Rita Boland. I'm from Signal Magazine and Signalscape, and I was wondering if you could tell us about how cyber warfare concerns are affecting your rebalancing and partnering decisions. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question, Rita. Thank you. I mean, cyber right now is, is, is characterized by many as, as the battle space of the future. It, it uh, permeates just about everything that we do. Um, and that is an aspect that as we go into uh, not just our daily operations, but the exercises that we go into, it's a, very, it's a large concern for us. But as I mentioned earlier, um, different countries have different capabilities. Uh, different uh, abilities to safeguard uh, their cyber networks. So we have to find ways with dealing, in some cases, long-standing treaty allies to involve them, uh, again, in, in, in operations and, and exercises in a way that we, we, we want to be open and share information, but on the same hand, have to be able to safeguard that information that we share with uh, partners and friends because, as you well know, not everyone in, in the Pacific uh, is necessarily our friend. So it, it's one of those challenges. Um, it is uh, something we must deal with. It is, that is, that is not, it's not just the future, it's today. It's how we do business um, and ensuring that those partners have the, the, the correct uh, security uh, measures in place. It, it sometimes causes us to do certain workarounds in order to be successful. But that's a great question, and it is, again, one of the challenges that we deal with on a daily basis. Thanks, Rita. And thank you. Uh, thank you for your question, Rita. And uh, Andrew Lubin, you are next. General Andrew Lubin, Leatherneck Magazine. Good to talk to you again, sir. Good to hear from you, Andrew. General, we've got Dawn Blitz coming up uh, on the West Coast, typically in America, uh, typically in Marine Japanese. Uh, bilateral uh, exercise. Now we've got Australians and New, New Zealanders. New Zealanders, what are they looking to add to the operation, and uh, what can we help with them with? Yeah, thank you for that question, Andrew. Uh, Dawn Blitz is, as you say, usually a case in point about how what was uh, historically a bilateral exercise expanding into uh, a multilateral exercise. L let me talk just a little bit about the Japanese, and I'll go to your question with, with the Australian and, and the New Zealanders. 
this is not, this exercise, just with the Japanese, is not uh, business as usual. This year's uh, Dawn Blitz show has three uh, Japanese amphibious ships that have sailed from uh, Japan, stopped in at uh, Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, where I had the opportunity to, to meet with the, uh, the commander of that amphibious force, uh, uh, a two-star admiral. Uh, I also had the opportunity to speak with the commander of the ground force that's embarked on those ships, a uh, two-star general. And uh, that in itself, to have Japanese ground forces embarked on Japanese amphibious ships uh, is, is uh, something very, very new to them. And they are looking at ways that they can build their uh, amphibious forces to be more capable, number one, throughout, throughout the region. And yet they're coming to us to ask to be trained so that they can ensure that as those forces develop, they are uh, compatible with us, which is critically important that as, as countries in the region develop those amphibious forces, that we remain uh, compatible so that we can work together. Now that's just the, the Japanese piece of it. Your question dealt uh, specifically now with in, including Australians um, and New Zealanders. And much of what I just said about the Japanese is applicable to the Australians and, and New Zealanders also as they develop uh, amphibious capabilities because a lot of the exercises, and Don Blitz is an example, it's not always that people come and participate uh, initially, sometimes they'll come as observers and see uh, how we're doing operations so that they can start bringing their forces uh, to a level where they can in fact participate. That's, in Australia's case, that's absolutely true because they will be uh, acquiring two uh, amphibious ships uh, in, in the very near future. Neither one of these countries have a Marine Corps, um, but yet all of those countries have uh, come to us and asked to be trained in, in looking for a Marine Corps-like capability. Uh, that's, that's really what they're looking for because they have seen firsthand in either exercises or real-world operations uh, such as uh, Operation Tomodachi, uh, the humanitarian assistance in Japan, the value of amphibious forces and what they can do um, throughout, uh, throughout the uh, entire uh, 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 region. I would just add, um, as I said, that, that, that's true um, with, the, with the Australians, but with Dawn Blitz, it, as you said, New Zealand, and uh, also you left out with, with is Canada is, is, is a country that's, that's participating in that exercise also. But again, last point, I didn't mean to, to go on to them, but it, it, it's a prime example of an exercise where historically limited in, in, in scope and scale with only a, a bilateral in nature, expanding multilateral uh, and involving um, many, many more, uh, more countries. And their ability to transit the Pacific you know, from, from, from the far east to come all the way to the west coast to participate in these, uh, this exercise. Um, they wouldn't do it just obviously out of the goodness of their hearts. It's important for them to be there, and they're, they're literally putting their money where their mouth is to get their forces out to the west coast to train with our units. So, Andrew, so, sorry I went so long on my answer, but that is a, a prime example of some of the things that we're seeing out in, out in the Pacific. So thank you for that question. Thank you very much.
And Chuck, you are next. Uh, thank you for speaking with us, General Chuck Simmons from America's North Shore Journal. Um, our relationship with Japan right now, uh, especially vis-a-vis the Marine Corps, is a little complex with uh, Okinawa in the mix, with the Japanese um, problem with China encroaching, uh, and now we're doing uh, amphibious exercises with the Japanese. Uh, can you uh, go into a little more characterization of, uh, of uh, how Okinawa and uh, the Marine Corps in general uh, fit in with our um, foreign policy goals towards, uh, towards Japan? Yeah, Chuck, that, that, that's a great question. I mean, as you well know, obviously, from, from the, I, I, I gleaned from your question, we have a very, very long uh, history uh, and alliance uh, with Japan and, and our presence in Japan and, and our presence in, uh, in Okinawa. Critically important to, to uh, what we're doing out in the Pacific. Uh, you talked about you know, Japanese relations. I, I would just comment that I don't think that Japanese-American relations have been better throughout that long history than they are right now. Um, there, there's several reasons for that. Um, I mentioned uh, Operation Tomodachi and the work that we did together, uh, our two countries, uh, in response to, to, to that disaster. Um, again, it gave us the chance to work together, show the value of amphibious forces, uh, what they can do uh, in, in this particular case from a humanitarian assistance disaster uh, relief operation. But it goes much further than that. Um, it, it, we talked a little bit about Don Blitz and, and, and what we're doing in that regard. But the value of Japan uh, as a treaty ally, more important probably today than it's ever been, and, it, and it's always been important. And a lot of people think that because of the rebalance that we're doing in um, the Pacific and some of the forced posture movements that we're doing uh, as, as far as a, just our distributed laydown, there's, a, I think, a misconception out there that in some way, shape, or form that we are reducing uh, our engagement with Japan. That, that is not true. There, there's no, no, no doubt that there's, we're moving forces around in the region. And again, because the region is changing and dynamic, we must also be uh, adjusting to meet the needs of the region. Okinawa the, the country of Japan still play a vital role uh, in, in the region and in, in U.S. Uh, uh, interest and in the things that we want to do out there. Some things have not changed, and that is the, the value of Okinawa and Japan to our forward deployed forces. Um, it is so critical for us, and I talked about the vastness of the Pacific. If we did not have the forces already positioned forward, um, it would just add to a timeline when a crisis occurs, be it man-made uh, or, or mother nature. Um, the, the point to 
to uh, solving a crisis is being able to respond in a timely manner, to being able to do it quickly. And Okinawa and Japan and our forces forward deployed there play directly into reinforcing our ability to do that. Additionally, uh, it, 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 it provides a, a, a deterrence from a security aspect um, that we, you know, I talked about the, the region wanting to be reassured about our commitment and our presence. Um, those four deployed forces do just that. So uh, in wrapping up to, you, to your question, I, our relations uh, with us and Japan stronger than ever and, and it still plays a, a, a critical role uh, throughout the region from our perspective. Thank you, sir. And Dale. Uh, good morning, sir. This is Dale Kissinger from Military Avenue. Um, I would like to ask a question about military families. The Pacific rebalance for uh, the Marines um, is going to have a, a create turb turbulence for Marine families. Um, can you give us how many people will be PCS and moved around in the region because of the rebalance? Yeah, it, it, I, I talked a little bit uh, about that on uh, on Chuck's question about how we're going to uh, redistribute some of our forces throughout the region um, to better uh, address the challenges that we face out there. One of the things that, that, that I find throughout the region is that sovereignty is very important to the countries throughout. And there aren't a lot of countries out there that are looking to have permanently based uh, military forces in their country. What they're very much interested in is a rotational presence to come to their countries, train with their forces, make their forces more capable and more compatible with our own, which we are also, that benefits us to do, but not from a permanent basing standpoint, it, uh, to your question, where we would be permanently placing military families uh, dependents in these countries to cause more hardship on our on our uh, on our Marines and, and sailors. What we're what we're doing is going back to the way that we did business in, in the Pacific uh, ever since I've been in the Marine Corps, and that's through deployments in a rotational manner. Many of our deployments based on six month deployments, like we used to do so much with our unit deployment program, which we're starting back up. Um, and using these things, um, these, these globally sourced type units, are, they, these aren't all coming out of one place. They wouldn't all be coming from uh, Japan or all be coming from Hawaii, but they're coming from throughout uh, globally sourced to come out, rotate into the Pacific region, conduct the training uh, with the, the countries throughout, show the presence, show the commitment, do the type of things uh, with these countries that they so much want to do and we want to do also. But it's not going to be that huge demand and impact on the military uh, families. That is, that is, it's just going to be the, you know, the UDP type uh, unit deployment program that we have done uh, in the past. But Dale, thank you for that question. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for your answer. Um, would that have an impact yeah. on the military families, though, the Marine families uh, facing longer uh, TDYs, deployments, uh, rotations? Um, have, have you prepared the families for those things? I mean, we've had 11 years of war, and they 
been their Marines have been gone a long time. They have. You're, you're absolutely right. But on the other hand, you know this is this is what we do, and you know from day one, uh, when you come into the Marine Corps, you can expect to deploy, um, and that you know that, I don't mean to take that as a hardship because. That's a, that's a huge selling point for the Marine Corps. Marines come to the Marine Corps to do just that. And I think that families understand, you know, they, uh, their husbands and or wives are Marines. That's what they do. I think we are seeing that the families support uh, their Marines in, in, in doing these type of things. Um, but the deployments, they, they will continue. But they, it's a... The model hasn't changed. We're not coming up with something new that is unique to the Pacific. What we're doing is a, a model that we've been using in the Marine Corps as long as I've been a Marine, and that's doing those six-month deployments that, uh, that, I, that I think are, are so – it's something that the Marines expect, and, and so, do, so do the families. Additionally, we have many family support uh, systems that, that that deal with these type of things. Sure, there 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 are stresses and, and 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 hardships that come from any type of separation like that. But the Marine Corps is, has a lot of programs that help uh, family members deal with those those stresses. But Dale, thank you for that question. Thank you. And Richard, you're next. Good morning, General. This is Richard Lowry with SyndicatedNews.net. Uh, I have a two-part question, and you brushed a little bit on the, on the answer. Uh, are there any plans underway to uh, augment the, the MU rotations so there will always be a, um, an amphibious ready group at sea in the Pacific, or maybe two? Or are you looking at different unit configurations that would allow you to have a more rapid response to uh, modern crises? Yeah, I, Richard, thanks for that one. Let me let me first talk about, um, you know, augmenting the MUSE. It, 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 as I'm sure you're aware, we have uh, one permanently uh, forward deployed MU, the 31st uh, ARG MU, that uh, operates out of uh, out of Japan, uh, that is always uh, out in the uh, Pacific region. We're always looking at ways when when uh, MUSE from from other areas transit through uh, the Pacific region uh, and, it, and, and using that opportunity uh, to use uh, uh, those MUSE uh, to help us uh, with our engagement uh, uh, activities throughout the, re uh, throughout the region. Additionally, and I'm, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what we're doing with our allies and, and partners and in getting them to engage with their assets uh, in the region. Arguably, since World War II, the United States has provided the bulk of security to the region. Today, we're, we're seeing many more countries that want to be involved and contribute to that security. And we talked a little bit about Japanese assets and Australian and, and New Zealand and, and Canada. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, and and that when you when you talk about more and getting uh, augmented uh, capabilities, a lot of the, what we're seeing in the region, and this is a very good thing, to see our, our our treaty allies and partners wanting to develop those capabilities, wanting to uh, 
stand shoulder to shoulder with us, if you will, in, from a security aspect and assist in, in, in doing those type of activities throughout the region. That is, that is a huge uh, uh, success story in what we're seeing uh, recently here uh, within the Pacific. But Richard, thanks, that, that was, that's a great question. Thanks, Richard, and on to Sandra. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, General. Sandra Erwin with National Defense Magazine. Uh, one of the topics that we hear a lot when people talk about the rebalancing to the Pacific is the, um, the, the threats, uh, the anti-access area denial threats. And I just kind of wanted to get your take on, um, as, as you plan uh, training and exercises for the Marine Pacific Forces, uh, what do you see as some of those anti-access threats, and how do you prepare for that? Yeah, Sandra, thank you for that question. One of the, 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 the best ways that we, we deal with that is through engagement. Um, and, and I talked a little bit about how countries within the region are very receptive to the type of engagement that that Navy Marine Corps team brings uh, to a maritime theater such as the Pacific. We have the advantage of having shipborne forces able to come to a country for uh, a, a, a requisite period of time, uh, you know, 15, 20 days, whatever, whatever the time period is, come in, conduct that training, work with their forces, better their capabilities, working, making sure compatibility exists between them and us, and then when, at the end of training, to be able to leave. And that, that type of engagement and access is what we build upon throughout the region to ensure the things that you're talking about, you know, the, the, the certain uh, uh, countries want to prevent and, and start to have anti-access area denial type things, we defeat that through what we call phase zero actions, those actions that are happening on right now today. And the relationships that we build today uh, before any crisis hits pays off tremendously uh, when, when a, a crisis occurs, be that man-made or, or, or uh, 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 from, from, from nature. But it's what we're doing today and working with those countries uh, on a day-to-day -day basis uh, that, that assures us that we will have that access that is so critically important when a crisis strikes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. As a very I'm sorry, just very quickly follow up. Why do you think that when people talk about this subject, they, they focus on heartening ships? You know, they, they talk about, you know, some of the naval ships being vulnerable. Uh, why, do the, why do you think that there's so much focus on hardening the weapon systems or platforms as opposed to what you're talking about, the phase zero? Yeah, I, I don't think that they're wrong necessarily in, in looking from a hardening defensive position, that, that's, that's not incorrect. Mm -hmm. um, I first, though, start about, you know, because that, from that position, it's post-crisis. I mean, the action has already taken place, so now we're in a reactive uh, position. I like to first start talking about any type of uh, uh, anti-access area denial uh, from before the crisis hits, and doing the actions that we do today uh, prevent those things from happening. 
The defensive part of, you know, you, you talk about hardening facilities or, or, or those type of things. Those aren't wrong actions by any means. Um, and, and obviously you want to hedge all bets, I and mean, if, if something uh, bad happens, that, that's not necessarily a wrong thing. But I think that the conversation needs to start with the actions that we're taking right now, today, with the countries throughout the region, and that those actions, that engagement, those relationships, those are the things that are going to assure uh, those, the, the access that, that we will need uh, in the future or when a potential crisis strikes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Thank on you. to uh, Gail. Yeah, Gail Harris with Foreign Policy Association General. Thank you for your time. You've already talked uh, briefly about cyber. I was wondering, what are some of the other top national security threats that keep you up at night? Yeah, hey, Gail, thank you. i, I got to be honest with you here. Um, you know what keeps me up at night is coffee. I mean... <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to be flippant by any no, means. No, no, I know you're not. But I, uh, I, I have a very positive uh, outlook on the Pacific, and, it, and it, the reason I do that is I, I've lived out there now for the last year, and a lot of my time is dealt uh, with going to the various countries throughout the region and seeing uh, what they say to me, their desire to, uh, in case of, in, for example, our, our five standing treaty allies, they want to remain treaty allies. They see the benefit uh, of the alliance with the United States. In addition to those five treaty allies, there are many new partners, some of them uh, not so new, we've, we've been partnered with before, but we have become uh, solidified with them as their, uh, their partner of choice, their force of choice. Um, in, a, in a region now that, as I discussed, that there is sometimes some uh, uh, unsure feelings about what the future may hold, we're a known quantity. We're, we're something that, that, uh, that has been there over 70 years. And the countries in the region know that and rely heavily on us uh, to continue to provide, uh, you know, th that type of security and that type of partnership. So I'm very optimistic. I don't, I don't, I don't stay awake at night worrying about uh, some things. Now, are there, are there concerns? Are there challenges in the region? Absolutely. And, and cyber is, is, is one of those issues. That, that we're going to have to deal with. There, there's no doubt about it. But does it keep me awake at night? Absolutely not. And I'm much more optimistic about the way that we're going right now in the Pacific uh, than, than, you know, hand-wringing pessimism about um, the things that, that could possibly go wrong. Because right now, to, to be honest with you, Gail, everything is in our favor. The, the, the engagements that we have worked so hard uh, to one obtain over the years and continue to work hard to maintain and to prove uh, and show to the region that the United States never left the Pacific. Um, we've always been there. Um, true, we have had uh, other concerns over in the other parts of the world that we've had to address, but by no means did we ever leave the Pacific. So. Well, I yeah, I, I've never thought we left either. I've spent a lot of time in the Pacific. So you're, can, you're content or you're confident that 
if North Korea flares up once again, we can keep him contained. And the crisis with China in terms of uh, uh, access uh, to what they perceive as to be their uh, sea areas uh, of concern, that type of thing, uh, you think we're, we're postured pretty well to handle that, continue to handle that, I should say. I'm very confident that we have the plans in place and the forces that we need to deal with that type of crisis that you discussed. But I would take it even further. The thing that I'm so optimistic, not not the plans that we have on the shelf and not the actions that, you know, and forces that we have um, necessarily uh, there. What I'm so optimistic about is how we are growing in engagement, how we are growing in uh, uh, the type of involvement we have throughout the region, the influence that we have. I am always struck as I as I as I tour through the the area that the, the, they come up that people throughout the region, uh, both civilian and military leaders, talk to me about ensuring that they maintain their engagement with us. Uh, that's probably the best measure of effectiveness that I can see that that, that they're working as hard as we are to maintain the 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 uh, the uh, connection to us. Again, I use the term, we are their force of choice. And that's a very strong position and something that we don't take lightly, and we work very, very hard day-to-day -day basis to maintain. Thank you. And, John, you are next. Uh, good morning, General. Um, I wanted, John Doyle with 4G War Blog, excuse me. Um, I wanted to ask you about amphibious ships. Um, it's no, no secret that uh, the ideal number for maintaining uh, um, two uh, expeditionary forces uh, is uh, insufficient. And I just wanted to know um, where you are on that and how, how much does it hamper your ability to operate in the Pacific and uh, is there help in sight? Yeah, thank you for that, Chris. John, I've got to be honest with you. I mean, I'm a Marine, and, you know, I, I'm most comfortable when, 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 I'm, when I'm aboard ship because that, that facilitates me to do the mission that, that, that I want to do. In the Pacific and the Maritime uh, region, and, and the more ships, the better. Um, absolutely. Now, with, with the resource, you know, restraints that we have, we may not have everything that, 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 uh, that I want. I will tell you that right now I have everything that I need out there. And I say that confidently because we are using other assets um, in roles that, that aren't their, their, their normal uh, uh, way that, that, that they were designed to be used. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We have uh, maritime preposition forces uh, out in the Pacific, and they've been there for, for many years. And they're primarily they're designed uh, to be used in time of crisis, it, it's, it's pre-positioned equipment that we can use uh, that, uh, that's already out in the region. We're using those ships now in ways where we're putting Marines on them and deploying them to participate in exercises throughout the region, which give us another asset, uh, another lift capability um, that we can use. In addition to things that, we have uh, new ships, new types of ships coming online. Our, uh, our high-speed vessels, our joint high-speed vessels are coming out to the region. Um, these give us the ability um, 
to, to, to transit that, that vast area that I was talking about to be at more places more often and, and do the type of engagement that we need to do. So, you know, I, it, before I, when I first started off, it, do I want more amphids? Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be being truthful with you if I didn't say that, yes, I definitely want more. Do I have enough to get done what I need today? Absolutely. And, and, and I'm, I'm optimistic about the future in using the assets that we do have in ways that help, uh, help me accomplish the mission that we need to do out there. Um, just quick follow-up. Um, General, how many dedicated amphibious uh, ships do you have at your disposal now? Right now we have, there are four ships that are four deployed uh, amphibious ships, four amphibious ships, four deployed uh, in Japan. Um, there is a potential in the future to get more than that out there, but there are other kinds of ships that we also use, and that's what I was talking about, where it's not just we won't do a mission because we don't have an amphibious ship currently available to do it. We use other ships that, that work for us just as well and enable us to do uh, a lot more of that access that's so critically important to us. Thank you, sir. And Michelle, you're next. Hi, General. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us this morning. This is Michelle Call from Military Matters. I was wondering if you could tell us a little more uh, with respect to the South Korean uh, taking care of the South Marina, if anything, as uh, Gail mentioned, if anything should arise with uh, North Korea, where we stand as far as uh, with the Navy, as far as the Navy coming in and working directly uh, off of their ships and where their deployments are right now within the Marines? Um, I Michelle, I want to make sure I understand your question. I mean, you're, you're, you're specifically asking about South Korea and our forces using South Korean ships. Is that, is that your question? Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's something – well, let, let me answer it this way. Um, there are cases of forces from other countries embarked on U.S. ships um, – and we're, and we're using our ships to facilitate their participation in various training exercises throughout the region. Um, to date, we have not uh, put, you know, U.S. forces on other ships to do that same thing. However, I would not put that out of a, a, an option that we would just pass up. South Korea is one of those countries that has developed a amphibious capability. They have amphibious ships. They have their own uh, uh, South Korean Marine Corps uh, that they put on those ships. Uh, and we just conducted an exercise uh, about uh, two months ago with them, Songyang, which is a, a uh, amphibious exercise in South Korea where U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps alongside uh, Republic of Korea Navy and Republic of Korea Marine Corps conduct amphibious exercises there on the peninsula. Um, we work very, very closely with them. But using South Korea specifically, just because they have their own organic uh, capabilities, they have their own uh, organic Marine Corps 
they're able to use their own forces and we, we, we stay with ours. Um, but I would just say it, it's not beyond uh, uh, the opportunity where we could do, uh, put our own, our forces on theirs, but right now that it, with South Korea, that, that's really not required at this time. I know when we had provided, uh, we've spent a lot of time doing the special war games with South Korea. And I believe part of that were the exercises that were with Song Yang. Is that the amphib is part of, was that part of that as well? The special war games that we participated in through the years? Yeah, Song Yang is a, is, is a specific uh, exercise that, 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 that focuses on uh, amphibious training um, on the Korean Peninsula. And that's something that, that, that we've been doing um, um, with, the, with the South Koreans. But I will tell you that, that the last one uh, that we just did, it also had Australian uh, participation. And it goes back to some of the previous questions about how, we're, how exercises are evolving so that we can incorporate uh, more uh, countries to participate instead of the way, you know, historically just being bilateral, uh, they're now moving to be more multilateral, which kind of goes back to your question about putting other uh, forces from another country on a different flag vessel. Yes, yes. <laughs> the type of cooperation that we're seeing now in the region, and this goes again to how the, the, the region is evolving and how countries, uh, relationships of countries within the regions are evolving to allow uh, the things to happen that you're talking about uh, specifically. Thank you, sir. And we have time for maybe one or two questions, so we'll go back around to Rita. I don't have another question at this time. Thank you. Roger that. Andrew? Yes, I do. General uh, Andrew Rubin again. With, we've got Marine Rotational Forces uh, in Darwin. Are they getting out and engaging uh, in the, with the Pacific Rim countries in their area? Or uh, are you still letting uh, – are you giving that security first, Neil? Yeah, I'll tell you, thanks, thanks for the question, Andrew. We're, uh, we're currently doing our second uh, rotation uh, of Marine uh, forces into uh, Darwin. I will tell you that uh, our first one, uh, when it was completed, I had, uh, I had just come uh, out to uh, uh, Hawaii, and the first company that deployed – uh, a rotational force to Darwin was, was uh, my old company uh, that I was a member of 30 years ago, and that was Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines. And I had the opportunity to talk with that company when they returned uh, uh, from that deployment and talked with the company commander and a lot of the Marines. And as fired up as those guys were, they had, they had good training opportunities and things to do out there, but the engagement that they did out in town uh, was really phenomenal. They did a great job. They, they, they hosted some uh, athletic events. They hosted a, a couple races. They did all kinds of stuff with the local community that uh, really, really bonded uh, the locals um, there around the Darwin area with the Marine Corps. Now, I, that was the first one. Second one uh, uh, just left uh, not too long ago. They've been there in, in uh, Darwin oh, a little over a month now, uh, seeing a lot of the same type of things where there is engagement out in town. Uh, the training aspect of it has been good. Um, 
going right along, the, the Australian government just last week voted uh, approval to move the, uh, the rotational force up to phase two deployments, uh, phase one being company level of around uh, 200 and 250 Marines. The second phase will be a battalion landing team size evolution uh, of about 1,100 Marines, um, which is just going to bring more capabilities, more engagements, doing more out uh, in Darwin and taking advantage of uh, the things that we do out there. Additionally, you know, it's not, you know, it's not just landlocked, if you will, to Australia. Um, we do other things. I mean, it's a rotational force that, that comes to Darwin and then the ability to move off Darwin, off Australia, to other places. Um, we, we've done that in, in, in with the, in, to New Zealand. We were able to move over and, and participate in an exercise uh, with the Kiwis. Uh, Alam Hoffa it was a, is a, is a uh, exercise we participate with them, but it gives us the opportunity, you know, we're in the neighborhood, so to speak, and gives us the ability to, to move over and do other things, uh, other training opportunities uh, out of Darwin. Great, thank you. And one more question, uh, Chuck. Yes, General, could you um, talk about the the redheaded stepchild of, of the Marine Corps, the uh, Marine Aviation? Uh, what kind of challenges do they face in the Pacific, and and, and how are you guys meeting them? Yeah, Chuck, I'm I'm a little surprised you called uh, Marine Aviation the redheaded stepchild. I mean, I'm an infantry guy uh, by, by trade. But I will tell you right now, when it comes to marine aviation, uh, my motto is don't leave home without it. Um, the, uh, the aviation uh, uh, plan throughout the Pacific uh, is moving along as scheduled. Um, I think that the, uh, the, 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 the thing that most people want to talk about is the, the arrival of the, the, the Osprey, the V-22. <clears throat> Our first squadron uh, is, has deployed uh, to uh, Japan working out very well. It is, a, it is a game changer for us. Capabilities of that aircraft are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's, uh, everyone now is, is looking at it. People are, are interested in how they can purchase their own. Um, it has made a huge impact, and, and we see nothing but uh, continued uh, uh, progress in, in that way. And, and when a second uh, squadron comes in, uh, behind it. In addition, um, and as I'm sure you know, we have the, uh, the Joint Strike Fighter uh, that, that will be coming online soon and will also uh, be employed uh, there to Japan. Uh, our fixed-wing uh, aircraft, again, uh, as an infantryman, don't leave home without it. Uh, and and, and it, it just, it's, it's the, the air, air component of the Marine Air Ground Task Force that we need to have out there that's so very critical uh, in how Marines do business on a day-to-day -day basis. But I, I would just, last thing i got to leave you with, Chuck, because, you know, my boss is an aviator, and, and uh, if, if you were to say anything, I would never characterize uh, any aviator as, as, as a redheaded stepchild. And, and uh, please, please take note that as an infantryman, never leave home without it. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I think that's uh, we're just running about out of time, so uh, I'd like to ask you if you have any closing statements you'd like to make. 
you know, the only thing is first I would just say thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. I know that uh, the Pacific, uh, it, it, is, it is literally thousands of miles away. Hawaii is 6,000 miles away from D.C. And uh, sometimes anywhere outside the Beltway is thousands of miles away. Um, so the opportunity to come here and talk to you about what's going on in the Pacific, a region that is vitally important to the United States, I, I, I just leave you with the people that live out in the Pacific, in the, in, in the, the 36 countries out there, uh, almost all are very, very interested and very, very reliant upon U.S. presence. The relationships that we've built up over the past, oh, 70 years, I'll say, and also those that want to start up new relations with the United States, vitally important. Vitally important region uh, to the United States and, and, and your Marine Corps is out there conducting day-to-day -day operations in a maritime environment that, uh, that, that, that we love to do and, and are enjoying being out there. So thank you very much for your time this morning. Sir, we really appreciate your time as well. And to all the bloggers online, thank you for your questions and your participation. As always, you'll be able to find the transcript and uh, audio file on DODLive.mil uh, later on this afternoon. Thank you again, everybody on the line, for your time and participation. This concludes today's call.